Hey, we're back in Luke this morning. Um, we're launching into our, our next series, a new series we're calling The Journey, Learning to Live with Jesus. So grab your Bibles, we're going to get right in today. We're in Luke chapter 9, starting in verse 28. If you need to use one of the pew rack Bibles in front of you, pull that out. We'll be on page 841 this morning. That's where, where we will be beginning. Uh, we had talked about this series and what we wanted to call it, and for a long time we were just calling it Journey. But the staff got really tired of me like breaking out with just a small town girl living in a lonely world. And they were just like done with that after about a month. And so they said, we're going to call it The Journey, Dave. No more singing in staff meetings. So, um, and it always has air guitar. That Anyway, um, also I'll tell you this about this series. Uh, we, we're actually calling it The Journey because... We're at this point in the Gospel of Luke where Jesus is now going to hit the road with his disciples and they're going to be on the move. And as they travel along, he's going to be giving some instruction, some life instruction to them about what it looks like to follow him, to live with him, to be his disciples in this world. However, right before they go, right before they head off as sort of kind of like a final traveling instructions party, Jesus orchestrates this one last pre-trip event and this event right before we go off on our journey is our passage for this morning luke chapter 9 starting in verse 28 about eight days after jesus said this he took peter john and james with him and went up onto a mountain to pray as he was praying the appearance of his face changed and his clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning Two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared in glorious splendor, talking with Jesus. They spoke about his departure, which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. Peter and his companions were very sleepy, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men standing with him. As the men were leaving Jesus, Peter said to him, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, And one for Elijah. He did not know what he was saying. While he was speaking, a cloud appeared and covered them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. A voice came from the cloud saying, This is my son whom I have chosen. Listen to him. When the voice had spoken, they found that Jesus was alone. The disciples kept this to themselves and did not tell anyone at that time what they had seen. This morning I want to to dig into this uh, significant event by talking about three things. I actually want to answer three questions for us today. What is God doing here? Like, What is this story about? What's he up to in the midst of this story? Uh, Two, how does he do it? How does he accomplish what he's up to? And then three, why? Like, What's the purpose? For what purpose does he orchestrate this event in the life of Jesus and his disciples? So... First of all, let's start with question one. What is God doing here? Luke begins this episode um, by saying this. He says, about eight days after Jesus said this. So we can tell by the way Luke starts this, that he's tying this event that we're looking at this morning to the things he has just previously said, the things he said about eight days ago. Whatever Luke is teaching us here is tied to what Jesus has just instructed his disciples around. And if you remember from the previous section, Jesus has just had this very significant moment with his disciples where he sat with them and he's asked this very poignant question. Who do the crowds 
say that I am? And then the disciples answer him, Elijah, John the Baptist, one of the prophets, maybe come back to life. And then Jesus hears their response and asks them a follow-up question. But what about you, he asked? Who do you say I am? And then Peter's response, the famous response from Peter, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. You are God's Messiah, Jesus. And Jesus affirms that. And, and you would think that in this moment of, of revelation and declaration about who Jesus is and what that means for humanity and all of creation, there would be a party or a celebration or at least some sort of a victory dance that confetti would fall or balloons would go up or something like that. But instead, the conversation takes a different turn. Jesus actually goes on to tell them that he'll suffer, that he's going to be killed that those who follow him are going to be asked to embrace a life of sacrifice and even suffering themselves. Now, one thing we have to remember here, I'm going to ask you to get outside of yourself for just a second. We, all of us here, we know that Jesus is going to die on a cross and that he's going to rise again. That is what we expect. For us, um, on the other side of these events... As New Testament Christians, we know that is how the story is supposed to go. We have heard the story go that way ever since we can remember. Some of us for the very first time recently, some of us since the time like we were kids a long, long time ago. However, the disciples are in a different place. For the disciples, the guys sitting listening to Jesus, this was not how the story was supposed to go. You see, in the story they knew, in the story they'd been told ever since they were kids, when the Messiah came, he was not going to end up tortured and humiliated on a cross. Instead, he was going to be enthroned and and reign and rule and be worshipped on a throne. You see, for them, this news is absolutely crazy. It's completely backwards from what they would have expected. One author I read this week said, this would be like in our, our day, a politician standing up and saying to her constituents, first we're going to take the White House, yeah, victory is at hand, yeah, no one can stop us, yeah, and then once we get there, the people will rise up and stand against us and vote us out of office in disgrace, who's with me? And people are like, ah, ah. You see, Luke is telling us that for eight days now, these two radically conflicting facts, Jesus is the Messiah, he's going to be crucified on a cross, are just sitting in the disciples' minds, eating at their, at their confidence. And they are now beginning to wonder, do we understand what's going on here at all? Is Jesus really the Messiah? Can this all be true? Can these things go together? You see, friends, doubt is beginning to fester. Question one, what is God doing here? First and foremost, this event is about God alleviating their doubt. He's he's offering them, he's giving them a boost of confidence for what's coming. You see, to really understand this passage, you need to know this. What happens here would have been very familiar to them. This whole story would have seemed eerily familiar, much like something they'd heard before, something they'd read before, because it was. This mountain story they're about to go through almost perfectly parallels another mountain story they knew well from the Old Testament. It's actually found in Exodus chapter 34. It's the story of Moses going up to Mount Sinai 
to uh, mediate a covenant with God and bring down the Ten Commandments. And I'll, I'll give you just a quick rundown of the similarities between the Exodus 34 story and our story here today in Luke chapter 9. In both of these stories... Um, they take place on a mountain. They both happen up on a mountain. Um, that's one's pretty obvious. In both stories, a cloud ends up coming and covering the mountain. In both stories, God speaks from the cloud. The cloud actually represents his presence. And, and in both stories, God's glory appears and, and, and the faces of the main characters are actually changed or transfigured. Um, they begin to radiate or glow. Friends, this story sounds like the old story because it's supposed to. It's supposed to conjure up images of Moses and the Exodus and a covenant relationship between God and his people. But along with the similarities, there's also some differences in these stories, and the differences are important as well. Um, Let me run through a few of the differences with you, and then we'll talk about what it all means. First of all, after Moses meets God on the mountain back in Exodus, in story one, his face begins to radiate as a reflection of seeing God's glory. In other words, Moses is kind of like the moon. Um, God's glory is there and it shines onto Moses and now God's glory is reflecting off of Moses. That's why his face radiates in story one. Jesus, on the other hand, in story two, our story for today, he radiates God's glory before God even shows up. He radiates God's glory not as a reflection, but as a source. You see, Jesus is not like the moon. Jesus is like the sun. God's glory is not simply reflected off of him. It comes from within him. And you'll also notice this. Luke wants us to understand that the radiant glory that comes out of Jesus is so much more superior than the glory that just reflected off of Moses. He actually throws in this fact as well. He says it wasn't just Jesus' face that radiated, but all of his clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. See, it was just a reflected glory off of Moses' face, but Jesus' entire personhood radiates the glory of God. The glory of God found in Jesus is not partial, it is complete. It is 100% comprehensive. This is not just a reflection of God, this is the God-man himself. Another difference um, between the two two stories is the cloud, which, by the way, is not some far-off place to store digital data up in the sky, but in this story, an actual physical representation of God's presence on the scene. And in the Old Testament story, the cloud was off-limits to everyone but Moses. And those of you who remember, some of you will remember this, uh, there's actually very explicit instruction. Don't bring anyone else up to the mountain. Don't let anyone else go anywhere near this cloud. Not even your cattle may graze anywhere near this cloud because if anyone or anything else besides Moses goes near this cloud, they will surely what? Die. They're going down. They are toast. And that is why in our story today, When they're up on the mountain and all of a sudden this cloud starts to move in, the disciples kind of freak out. It says in verse 34, while he was speaking, that's Jesus, a cloud appeared and covered them. And they, that's Peter, James, and John, were afraid. The word there is actually terrified as they entered the cloud. Well, heck yeah, they were afraid. They've heard this story. They know about this cloud. They know what happens to people that get into the presence of God. They don't stick around long, and so they're terrified. But in our story today, does anything happen to them? 
are they struck dead or are they fine? Do you know? Are you listening? Are you with me at all? For those of you who are just waking up again, they are alive, they're fine, they are okay. And this is perhaps one of the most beautiful sub-points of this text. It's sort of a side note. But, but it's, it's Luke's way of reminding us that with Jesus, the presence of God is not something to fear. You see, the holiness and righteousness and glory of God is so majestic that in our sinful state, it will just overwhelm us and, and, and even kill us. But with Jesus... With Jesus, the presence of God transforms from something to fear into something to be embraced and and even enjoyed and reveled in. All right, finally, last difference, and then I'll draw some conclusions for us. The last difference I want to point out is the presence of Elijah. Elijah is not in the first story. He is in the second story, our story today. And uh, he shows up on this mountain, and here's why. Basically, Elijah was a prophet from the Old Testament who was strongly associated with the coming of the Messiah and the ultimate fulfillment of God's promises. All the things that God has promised and has has displayed in in minor ways throughout history now uh, associated with Elijah are God's ultimate fulfillment of all those things. Elijah represented sort of an end of an era and the beginning of a new era. Uh, The new era being the era where God's kingdom would come again to reign on earth fully and completely. So we put all this together and here's what we get. Jesus has brought three of his disciples up onto this mountain so that they can see for themselves that he surely is the Messiah. The one they have been waiting for. The ultimate Moses who will save his people, not just from earthly slavery and bondage, but a deliverer who will rescue us from all the sin and suffering and evil and bondage and corruption this world could ever throw at us. Jesus is now the one who will ultimately save not just a small group of people, but all people, all of creation from the bondage of sin and death and corruption that came through the fall. In fact, you'll notice that in verse 31, Luke uh, says this, and this is a story, by the way, this story we're looking at this morning is in several Gospels, but this verse right here is unique to Luke. He says, they spoke about, that's they, Jesus, Moses, Elijah, they spoke about his departure, which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. And that word departure is this Greek word right here, exodus. They spoke about his exodus, the final exodus, the ultimate exodus that will deliver everyone and everything out of the bondage of slavery to sin that we are in. You see, the exodus Moses led, that was just a little taste. That was just a snippet. That was just a mere reflection of the grand, comprehensive deliverance Jesus has come to bring. Disciples, this moment screams, this event shouts, Have no doubt, although he may suffer and die, although he is not what you expected, Jesus surely is the Messiah you've been waiting for. God offers this event to to quell their their doubts and alleviate um, the, the nagging wondering in their brains about Jesus and who he is. And on some level, they get this. On some level, they do begin to understand because at the very end of this story, Luke kind of concludes in kind of a strange way. The very end of this whole thing, it says, the disciples kept this, this whole event, to themselves and did not tell anyone at that time what they had seen. You see, what they have now seen has expanded their view of Jesus and who he is to such an extent that it begins to just blow them away. 
It's almost incomprehensible. It's unexplainable. They're not even sure they've quite grasped it. And so they just sort of let it simmer, let it sit. They cannot even speak of it. It is that huge. Even Peter, who just a few verses before said, you are the Christ, you're the son of the living God, you're the Messiah. It's like now he's thinking, I had no idea what I was even saying. I did not even come close to understanding who it was I was talking to. A couple, uh, a couple of weeks ago, uh, Greg Levinson took me out for Ben and Jerry's ice cream, which I think is a wonderful plan for most congregants to do with their pastor. Um, <laughs> And he took me to the, the, the Ben and Jerry shop down on Yamahill Street by Pioneer Square. And one cool thing, this is kind of a side note, but I, I discovered about this shop is that it's, it's a non-for-profit shop and all of its profits go to support our city's new adventures or new, new avenues for youth program. And the store itself actually provides jobs for these young adults who are at one time homeless and have now been rehabilitated and they're being trained for the workforce and they work in this Ben and Jerry's shop and then all the money that's raised goes back into that program. It's a real beautiful thing. And Ben and Jerry's just sort of does this out of the goodness of their heart. So it was a wonderful discovery for me because I discovered on this day that I can now eat Ben and Jerry's ice cream and feel good about it. I can be involved in like doing good godly stuff while enjoying Ben and Jerry's. Greg, I am forever in your debt. Um, I'm pretty sure that you're going to be able to eat ice cream this guilt-free in heaven. So thank you, Ben and Jerry's. Kind of like a living example of thy kingdom come, thy will be done (laughs) on earth. Anyway. while we're there in this Ben and Jerry shop, Greg tells me the story, and it's the story of the time he actually visited the Ben and Jerry's like factory, the, the home office back in, in Vermont. And while he was on the tour of the facility, this guy came up to him and asked, hey, are you enjoying your tour? And Greg, being a friendly guy, said, yeah, it's so good, I'm loving the tour. And they started talking, and Greg shared his name with the gentleman, and the gentleman said, yeah, hi, my name's Jerry. And they continued to talk, and Greg said, oh, where, are you, where are you from? And he said, oh, I'm actually from around here. And he said, oh, where do you live? Oh, just a couple miles away. Oh, that's awesome. So do you get here a lot? The guy said, yeah, I get here quite a bit, actually. He said, oh, really? Oh, neat. And they talked some more, and finally Greg says, and what do you do? And Jerry says, well, I'm in the ice cream business. And Greg Greg says, you know, you don't say. That's amazing. You must really enjoy this tour. And so they they continue to talk and go on and on. And finally, it's like, nice to meet you. And they part ways. And then several moments later, another person on the tour comes up to Greg, kind of really excited, and says, hey, what was it like to meet Jerry? And Greg says, what do you mean? And he says, you were just talking to Jerry. And he's like, huh? He's like, you know, Jerry, Ben, and Jerry's? And Greg says, Oh, yeah. Like, it didn't really dawn on him. And Greg's normally a pretty sharp guy. At least that's what he tells me. So, um, uh, he had no idea who he's talking to. And, and friends, on a much grander scale, the disciples are now going, Oh, we had no idea who it is we've been talking to and walking with and learning from. He is so much bigger and grander and more significant than we could even ever possibly have imagined. One author I read this week defined this scene, this story, as a divine moment of peekaboo where God, for just an instant, pulls back the curtain to reveal the glory of His Son. And He does this to give the disciples a shot of confidence, the shot of confidence they will need 
as they walk the journey that lies ahead with him. What is God doing here? What is this story meant to do for us? It's meant to alleviate their doubt and our doubt that Jesus truly is the Messiah, the Son of the living God, and that that's even more significant than we could possibly imagine. That's question one. All right, question two. And here's where it gets a little more fun. How does he do it? How does God alleviate their doubt? And I'll answer this question right up front for you. He does it through personal experience. He does it through letting them experience this reality for themselves. Here's the deal, friends. When it comes to faith, having faith, living by faith, walking in faith, information is helpful. It's a good thing. The experiences of others can bolster us and encourage us and help us to move forward. However, there is nothing that can build our faith like personal experience with God. John Ortberg has written some wonderful things on this and one illustration he uses that I absolutely love, this is something that's been critically helpful for me in terms of thinking about my own faith and walk with God. He he tells the story of his daughter and he going to this camp where there's a high ropes course. And in order to bolster the confidence of those participating, Ortberg writes that everyone going on to this course was given just a slew of information, this sort of crash course on high ropes. He writes this, We would all be hooked in securely to a safety line. The instructor gave us information about how secure the vests were, how the carabiners could support thousands of pounds of weight, how the worst thing that could possibly happen to anyone who slipped is that they would dangle in midair until being rescued just a few moments later. We all believed this information. If you had given us a test, he writes, we would all have affirmed our beliefs, our faith, in the safety of every single step we would take on the high ropes course. Friends, information does increase our faith. It helps us believe and act more confidently. Information is a good thing. Information is not a bad thing, but it's not, friends, the only thing, and it's certainly not the ultimate thing. The next thing Ortberg talks about is the testimony of others who had been up on the course. So they didn't just give kind of abstract facts about the course. They let people who'd actually been up there and experienced the equipment talk about it, talk about how safe it truly was, how it, it held them up when they slipped and fell. They talked about their experience and how you could trust this equipment because I've been up there and I've walked on the equipment and, and it, it worked for me. Friends, information increases faith and the experiences of others encourage our faith. However, information and the experience of others can only take us so far. At some point, our faith must become our own and we must experience and trust God for ourselves. Here's what Ortberg writes next. A strange thing happened, however, when we finally got up on the course, 30 feet off the ground. I found out that my body did not believe I was safe. (laughs) My sweat glands clearly had doubts. My heart rate regulator was nervous. The butterfly squadron in my stomach went into action and I could try to tell my body about the safety information and what the others had told me, but my body was not listening. You see, Orberg talks about uh, how we can say we believe in things. We can, we, can, we can confess it. We can talk about it. We can say, I believe in this. I believe in that. I believe in this. Maybe it's true, maybe it's not, but we say it. And then he talks about how we can even think we can believe in things. We can truly convince ourselves. We can believe that we believe in things. But then he writes this. However, we reveal what we truly do believe 
by our actions. You see, we can say we believe in things and we can think we believe in things, but we will reveal what we truly actually believe deep in our hearts and souls by our actions. Friends, this is why the Bible never separates out what we believe from what we do, because when we truly believe something, our actions will ultimately follow suit. If you believe it, you will do it. If you believe it, you will act accordingly. If you don't act accordingly, then you may think you believe it, you may say you believe it, but maybe you don't really believe it. Again, Ortberg writes this. I believe if I touch fire, I will get burned. So I don't touch fire. I believe coffee helps wake me up. I believe in gravity. I believe in it on such a level that I don't have to work hard to behave in a way that is congruent with gravity. I don't have to get up in the morning and say, today, I'm going to demonstrate my commitment to my belief in gravity. I don't have to remind myself not to jump out of 10-story buildings. And then he writes this. This is, this is so profound. Faith, biblical faith, the kind of faith God longs for you and I to have, is coming to believe with my whole body, my whole life, down deep in my soul, what I say I believe in my mind. Faith is coming to believe with my whole body what I say I believe with my mind. And here's the point I'm making this morning, friends. That kind of faith will not happen simply through information or the experiences of other people relayed back to you, that kind of faith will take personal experience. Back to the ropes course, and and more of that story. Ortberg writes this, But then I saw college kids who worked all summer at camp. They went up on the ropes course every day. Their bodies believed they were safe. You could see it in the ease of their movements and hear it in their laughter. They did not worry about their fates. Their minds were free to think more interesting thoughts. You see, these college kids, they'd had something that John didn't have. They had information, they had the experience of others, but they had personal experience with the course, personal experience up on the ropes for themselves. Friends, nothing will increase your faith in God, in Jesus, in His identity and trustworthiness and power and love and grace like experiencing Him for yourself. I don't care how many sermons you sit through. If you don't get up on the course on your own, it will only be a theory. You see, in our story today, Peter, James, John, they are given a personal experience with the Course. Personal experience with Jesus up on this mountain. And they get to experience firsthand who He really is. It's not told to them in a manual. It is not relayed to them by someone else. They experience who Jesus is for themselves. And maybe this is where this passage moves from theoretical to personal. Because I don't think you can live as a Christian with only information about Jesus or, or, or stories passed on from other folks. I believe the Bible calls us to have the kind of faith that requires we've been up on the ropes course and experienced who Jesus is in our lives. That when times get tough and things in this world go sideways like they always do, we know that we know that we know that we know Jesus is who he claimed to be because I've experienced him myself. And I guess the question for us this morning is this. How long has it been? How long has it been, friends, since you've had a personal experience with Jesus? You see, 
One thing I have to confess that I'm sometimes guilty of is not just relying on information or the experiences of others, but sometimes what I do is I just get lazy and I rely on experiences from my past. And I've had these experiences with Jesus and they go back to when I was in high school when I was in college when I first became a pastor and I go back to those experiences and they're getting farther and farther and farther away. Where are the fresh experiences, personal experiences between you and Jesus that you can tap into, that you can look to when times get tough, that remind you God is who he says he is. Do not go days or weeks or months or years or decades without fresh new personal experiences of trusting Jesus. And friends, those kinds of experiences you can never have from the ground. Those kinds of experiences only come when you get up on the ropes. What ropes course is Jesus asking you to climb onto today that you might experience him in a fresh way again now? Maybe it's a relationship. Maybe Jesus is saying, I want you to trust me and how you relate with and are relating with this person. Maybe he's calling you to step out or have a hard conversation or confront or persevere or offer forgiveness or offer truth. Maybe it has to do with work. Maybe work is your ropes course and God's calling you to some things where you work. Maybe it has to do with your kids. Maybe students, it has to do with school or a career path or a decision you need, you need to make in a relationship that you know you've been, you've, you've been needing to make but you've been putting off. Maybe, maybe your of course is a place of serving that God is asking you to step into but it's scary and you're not secure and you've never done it before but God's saying, trust me, take a chance, get out there. Maybe there's an area of your life that's caught up in sin. Maybe there's some stuff, some junk like Pastor Gabby talked about today. It's just deep in your soul and God's saying, it's time to get on the course. It's time to start dealing with that. I know it's easier just to avoid it or push it away or ignore it but maybe it's time to get it out into the light and get it taken care of. You know, we talked about giving a few weeks ago and maybe the ropes course for you is turning over your money to God and just saying, Lord, I'm tired of just paying lip service to trusting you and really trusting in my money. Maybe God wants you to, to learn to trust him and maybe he'll teach you to have a generous heart in the midst of that. Friends, God wants you on the ropes somewhere. He wants you to have a personal, fresh experience with him. What ropes course is God calling you to Today, not two weeks ago, not two years ago, not two decades ago, today. And this brings us to our last question for this morning. Why? For what purpose? Why does Jesus in this moment choose to alleviate the doubts of these disciples through this amazing personal experience on the mountain? And here's why. Remember what Peter says right in the middle of this story? They're all up on the mountain together, right? There's this amazing stuff going down. Peter and the boys have been sleeping. Jesus was praying. So uh, they have a tendency to do that for some reason. When it's prayer time, the disciples all go to sleep. So if you've ever fallen asleep in a prayer meeting, you're in good company, I guess. Um, But they're all up there. Peter, James, and John, they kind of wake up. They see Moses and Elijah and Jesus. And then what does Peter say? He says, let us put up three shelters, Jesus. One for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And then Luke adds his comment on this statement. He did not know what he was saying. Luke's a lot nicer than me because I think what he's trying to say here is that's the stupidest comment ever, Peter. Um, And actually what Peter's revealing here is that he still does not understand. 
He still does not fully grasp. He still does not see how significantly separate Jesus is from even the greatest heroes of the faith. And so when this cloud comes and the voice comes down from heaven, it's a voice that is affirming Jesus, but it's also a voice that's seeking to correct and redirect Peter's thinking. Verse 35, A voice came from the cloud saying, This is my son whom I have chosen. Listen to him. And then hear this. When the voice had spoken, they found that Jesus was alone. Jesus was alone. No more Moses, no more Elijah, just Jesus. Listen to him. Friends, are there voices in your life, in your mind, in your world that you are letting guide you when all God wants you to do is listen to Jesus? See, Jesus does not come to be just one of many voices. He does not want to be just one of many advisors in your life. He does not want to be one of several philosophies you are exploring to better yourself. He wants to be alone, on the wheel, in solo control of your life and where you're going and who you are. Jesus wants to be the guide, the solo guide on your journey. You see, like Peter, our instincts, Peter so much, so often just represents us, I think. He just says what so many of us think. He just says how so many of us act. And like him, our instincts will not always be right. We will not always intuitively know the right thing to say or the right course of action or the right thing to do. But if we will listen to Jesus, he will guide our steps. He will guide our steps. Friends, where in your life do you need to stop and pause and put down the self-help books or throw away the opinions of your friends or your mother that still sort of rolls through your head or your kids or even yourself and just say, God, I just need to listen to you. Jesus, what do you have to say on this subject? Where in your life do you need to put all other voices aside and just right now listen to Jesus? Get some focus and hear him. And I think one of the questions that comes out of this this section is, well, that sounds good, Pastor Dave. How do I do that? How do I hear Jesus? How do I find Jesus? What does it look like to listen to Jesus? And what would Jesus tell me if I was listening to him and only him? Well, friends, that is actually what we're going to be talking about in the rest of this series. So do not miss it. Join us. Jump in for the journey as we together learn to live with Jesus and hear his voice and follow only him in this world. But for now, I'm going to close us with a word of prayer. Father, your son is so amazing. I'm reminded this week that he's, I take him for granted so much, God. I just, he's Jesus. He's with me. He's my friend. Uh, I know him. I've walked with him for so long, I forget sometimes how magnificent you are, God. Forgive me for that. Forgive us for that. Help us to remember who you are, who it is that we follow, and that that would evoke confidence in us to get on the ropes and to live your way and to seek your voice and to listen to you and only you, even when all the other voices in this world are telling us something different. Help us to be a people, Lord, that hear your voice, that know your voice, and that boldly follow you wherever you lead. That is my prayer. 
It's my prayer for myself, God, and that is my prayer for this church. All people agreed and said, Amen.